you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Hey, good morning. How are we all doing? It's an honor and privilege to be with you. It's my second time to Houston, and it keeps getting better. So uh, if you'll have me, I'll definitely be back. (laughs) I'm enjoying it. My church met this morning, uh, so I was checking in on them, and they were encouraged. And uh, I want you to know that last week, last Sunday, we prayed for you guys as a church, uh, and people were were so encouraged to hear how you guys are seeking to make Jesus known across your city as we seek to do that in our own city. Uh, And we're so so thrilled that we get to share the same mission, the same saviour, as we get to do that. And I'm so honoured to be able to help you through this series, Uh, and I'd love you to keep that passage open at you that was read for us uh, from 1 Corinthians 15 as we look at that. This past week I was, well, not this past week, week before, I came to the States, I was in a coffee shop uh, just round from our church, and I was chatting to a lady there who runs a charity to help Uh, for suicide prevention in our community, which is an alarmingly high rate. And she's got some sort of Christian uh, experience, but very little. And and I was talking to her through the gospel, and and I kind of was unpacking the gospel, and I got to this point that was like, and Jesus rose again, and Jesus is coming again, and and he's going to resurrect all who are with him into new glorious bodies, into a new creation, where there'll be no more sickness, and I said, no more suicide, no more death. He'll wipe away every tear. And she said, whoa, 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 back up, back up, back up. You're telling me that Jesus is coming again? I thought he had already been. Like, I didn't even know that. I just thought like he, he did the stuff on the cross and like he set a good example and we just got to follow that, try and be good people. But he's coming again. I was like, yes, he is coming. Of course he's coming again. That's what gives us hope. That's what gives us joy in this life. He's coming again and we're going to be with him in a new creation forever. She's like, I did not know that. And it blew my mind that she did not know that, but it's so reflective of our culture in England right now. People have never been to church. They don't know the story of the gospel. They don't know who Jesus is. And as I was sharing the story, I was like, man, of course it's all about the resurrection. If it weren't for the resurrection, we wouldn't be here, would we? Would you? Let's be honest. If, If the resurrection is not true, and that the truth that we are going to be resurrected with him, we would not be here. This, this, like, this is a really bad hobby on a Sunday morning to be doing, like, honestly. I would not have flown across the world and left my wife and family for two weeks if the resurrection was not true. And if Jesus wasn't coming again, I would not be here, as much as I love your city. I might come for Taylor Swift, because apparently that's the thing to do. <laughs> But the resurrection is the hinge upon which the story of the world pivots. It has profound implications for our past, for our present, and our future. It's the thing that sets Christianity apart from every other faith or belief system in the history of the world. Every other system might proclaim a good leader, but we proclaim a risen leader. Every other system might proclaim a a tomb that you can go visit and a shrine that you can worship at, but we say there's an empty tomb and he's alive today. He is resurrected. He is the first fruits of a resurrection that we too likewise will rise with him when he returns, which means if the resurrection is not true, nothing else matters. But it also means for us as the church that the resurrection is true Nothing else matters. 
It crystallizes everything into who we are as his people and as his church. It changes everything, the course of history, the world, you and me. But you see, I keep finding people find it hard to believe in a resurrection. I don't know about you, your friends, your colleagues, your family. Do they find it easy to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, you see, that same experience is felt by the church in Corinth as Paul wrote to them. It is no, no easier for us to believe in a resurrected Savior than it was for them in the first century. They were struggling to believe, but they were more so struggling to understand what does that mean for us? What are the implications for us? So right out of the path in verse 12 and 13, uh, Paul presents this reality. He presents that if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you say that there is no resurrection? He's presenting this argument to them that if there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ has not been raised. What he's doing beautifully is saying, if Christ is raised, we also will be raised like him. He has gone ahead as the first fruits. We're gonna follow him. There was struggle, division, issue in the church, in the culture at large, as people wrestled and grappled with this truth. So what Paul does off the back of that, 14 to 19, is he presents an argument that says, what if there is no resurrection? He's gonna paint the picture. Then he's gonna flip to verse 19, and he's gonna then, and sorry, verse 20, he's then gonna flip and say, here's what it means if there is a resurrection. And then he's going to give us some implications for our lives today. So let's look at that together. Verse 14 to 19, he's asking the question, what if there is no resurrection? Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is futile. He presents the dire reality. If there is no resurrection, Paul's life and ministry he devoted himself to was all in vain. The shipwrecks, the beatings, the persecutions, the imprisonments, the marginalization, the persecutions he's experienced, his writings, his letters, his preaching, his teaching, his discipleship, every bit of it is in vain. It was completely wasted. What is the point? And if it were not true, he would not have devoted his life to it. And sadly, our faith would be in vain. It's like a lie that you've lived. It is not true if Christ is not risen. More than that, verse 15, we were even found to be misrepresenting God because we've tested about a God that he raised Christ. He's saying, I'm a liar. If Christ is not raised, I'm a liar. I've misrepresented God. I've in fact made God out to be a liar because he promised that he would send his son to die and rise again. Jesus himself claimed to be God and he was risen again. He spent the first 11 verses unpacking the historical reliability, the accounts of the resurrection. If this is not true, I'm a liar, God's a liar. Everything God's ever said is a lie. And Paul knows the significance of misrepresenting God as a Jew. That deserved death. Paul's putting his life on the line here and he's saying if this is not true, then I'm a liar, God's a liar and there is no hope in the world. Worse than that, verse 16, if Christ is not raised, the dead are not raised. If Christ isn't from the dead, there's no hope for us. Our hope of eternal life is found in the objective reality that Christ did die and Christ did rise. 
More than that, verse 17, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If Christ is not raised, we can read Psalm 51 all we want until we are blue in the face that means nothing. You're dead in your sins. If Christ is not raised, you can take all this as much as you want. You can read the Bible as much as you want. You can be a community together as much as you want, but you will continue to walk around with the heavy burden of your sins if Christ is not raised. You're left to your own devices to sort your problem of sin out and all the best with that. More than that, all those who have died with their hope in Christ, verse 18, have merely perished. Which culminates verse 19 in the fact, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Pitied. Laughed at. Considered a mockery. Scorned. The reality of Christ is not raised. The picture that is painted is pretty dire. Summed up by a famous Russian literature writer, famous for writing War and Peace, but in his book Confessions, he wrote this statement. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? This is the weight that we have to feel as Christians if there is no resurrection we are simply awaiting an inevitable death that takes away everything that is good. Would your life look any different if the resurrection wasn't true? Paul paints this dire picture and then he flips in verse 20 with these sweet words, but if in fact Christ is raised. He goes from saying, if there's no resurrection, that's a dire picture, that's a sad picture. We do not want to have that. We want hope. So he flips it, but if Christ has been raised, that means, verse 14, all this isn't in vain. What we believe is actually accurate about God. It is all true. That if Christ is raised, we will also rise with him. Our faith isn't futile. And that those who've died in Christ haven't perished, but they will be raised to everlasting life. And you know what? We're not to be pitied. We're to be envied. Out of all of the humanity, they're to look at us and envy the faith and the hope that we have. Because our faith is an objective reality that Christ did live and Christ did rise. And Christ is coming. And he's going to raise us with him to resurrected life, resurrected bodies, and a whole new creation with him. That's good news. That's good news for you. That's good news for me. And he unpacks this argument again, verse 20, that the reality of the resurrection is that Jesus isn't just an example, he's actually the first fruits 
of that new humanity. Christ has risen into resurrected physical body. He was seen. He could be touched. He had breakfast with friends. They walked with him for 40 days before he ascended in a resurrected body. That means he's the first fruits of us. That though we may die, we will rise to resurrected bodies never to die again. He's the first fruits of that. He has gone ahead. He's the trailblazer, the pioneer that we follow. He's the one we will become like. That's good news. Verse 21, 22, if he's been raised, praise God, we are not dead in our sins. If he's been raised, we're no longer dead in our sins. The greatest problem of humanity was our sin. Our sin that cut us off from a holy, eternal God. The first representative, Adam, created in the image of God to walk in the presence of God in the beauty of his world and creation of the garden. Yet in Genesis 3, he, he rejects and rebels and the first fruit of Adam is being cast out of the presence of God. The first fruit of Adam is a death that all of humanity follow. But in Christ, verse 23, he is the first fruits, the true and better representative, the true and better Adam comes, takes on flesh, walks in the midst of this world, act with people, talk with people, perform miracles, taught, yet undeservedly on the cross takes our sin, our shame, the eternal wrath of God that we deserve is poured out on him in our place as our representative. He does it willingly, voluntary. Why? Because of his great love for his people. We didn't deserve it. We didn't merit it. We didn't contribute anything to that that made Jesus go, you know what, Josh Walsh is really deserving of my death. He didn't look down and go, you know what, because the sake of sojourn in the future, because they're so great and they're killing it and they're smashing it, because they're such wonderful people in their hearts, I'm gonna, no, it's the opposite. It was because of the glory of the Father who deserves a people for himself that he sends his only son because of his great love. And we get the grace of that. We don't deserve that. We deserve to be cut off just like Adam was. But in the grace and the mercy of Jesus, the true and better Adam, our representative, dies and rises again, stares death in the face and conquers it, defeats the evil one, so that we too will rise with him to the newness of life. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then we're not dead in our sins. We don't carry the weight of it anymore. It's gone once and for all. We don't have to beat ourselves up for four weeks after we sin and try and deserve our way back into God's favor. No, we walk out in the newness of life, free from guilt, free from shame. It's gone, he's paid for it. This is the reality of his resurrection. This is what he has bought for us. Don't throw it back in his face and say, I'll earn it in two weeks time when I beat myself up about my sin. No, he died so we walk in the newness and forgiveness of sins. And Jesus now, verse 23 to 24, is preparing for us a place to be with him. He is ruling and reigning now. He is still working to subject everything in this world under his feet like a footstool, including the enemies, and he will crush it once and for all. And he will present to the Father his kingdom, his people, and he will subject himself under the Father. And for all eternity, we will walk as a brother to our Savior, Jesus Christ.
man, what epic realities we get. If the resurrection is true, we get this. We inherit eternal life, forgiveness of sins, a new creation, a new resurrected body, and he will dwell with his people for eternity. Leo Tolstoy heard that reality for himself, and at the end of that quote, I left out this bit. He goes on to say, having asked the question, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy, he says this. I heard the words of Christ and understood them. And life and death ceased to seem evil and instead of despair, I experienced happiness and the joy of life undisturbed by death. That's us now, isn't it? As Christians, we now walk through this life not fearful or crippled or paralyzed by the prospect of death, but we now walk in the reality that our Savior has conquered it and overcome it and defeated our enemy and defeated our sin, that we now can look through this life of joy and happiness undisturbed by death. And I don't mean a happiness is like smiling all the time or clapping all the time. It's not that. But a joy that transcends the deepest, hardest sufferings and pains. A joy that transcends even the most difficult realities in the brokenness of this world because we know Jesus has destroyed every ruler and authority and power and associated with death, sin, and decay. This is the victory that we now walk in, that he now shares with us. If Jesus is not risen, then you're dead in your sins, your faith is futile, but if he is, you're no longer dead in your sins. Your faith isn't futile. And you're destined to an eternity with him in a new creation and a resurrected body. Thanks be to God. He's alive. He has been raised from the dead. And we can live because he lives. As Paul deals with this tension and struggle in Corinth in the church, he flips from these two arguments to implications in verse 29. He goes on to say, lastly in these last few verses, is that this reality has to change everything in your life. You cannot just continue to live as you are. It's like one of those verses that kind of just hits you in the face and you're like, whoa, I can't escape the reality. If this is true, I have to change. He says things like, Wake up, sober up. There are people who have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Apparently the church in Corinth were just falling back into their old ways as if Jesus didn't die, as if Jesus didn't live, as if Jesus didn't rise again, as if Jesus wasn't coming again. Their misunderstandings of the resurrection led to wrong practice in their lives in the church. And Paul writes to correct that. This misunderstanding you can see in verse 29 came to bring about this strange practice. This misunderstanding that this strange practice of people being baptized on behalf of the dead. Is that what we should do now? There was a fear in the midst of the church that if, that if people weren't baptized before they died, then they won't be resurrected and be with Jesus for eternity. Paul's writing to him saying, no, no, no. The resurrection of Jesus shouldn't lead to anxiety and confusion in your life. It should lead to assurance and confidence in your life. He corrects them to say, this must 
correct your perspectives on life and on death. It must correct your perspective on how you live as his people. So he gives them a few implications as I close. The first implication, I think, is that the resurrection of Jesus and our future resurrection with him should shape our view on life and death today. He goes on to say, verse 30, I'm in danger every hour. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. C.S. Lewis famously said, 100% of us die and the percentage cannot be changed. In light of the reality of death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ should change our perspective on our life and death. In my culture, the way that people respond to death is to passively deny it. Let's just pretend like it's never going to happen. Let's just you know, live life. Let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's just suck as much life and entertainment out of this world. Let's binge watch Netflix. Let's just invest everything into this world. Some actively battle against it. Let's just push it down by, by fitness and being as strong as I can or as fit as I can. Some just, when faced with the reality, sadly say stuff like, well, my loved one's now an angel in the sky. She's a star. Everyone believes in death, in life after death, but some are living under the reality of falsehood. In Corinth, what they were struggling with in verse 32 is this, this idea that the body and soul cease to exist after death, which is why we should just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. They thought there was nothing after it, so they just sucked life out of this world. Some believed that the body ceases, but the soul continues. So what they give themselves to was licentious living. They would give themselves to using their body for as much pleasure as possible, particularly sexual immorality. And they thought that the soul continued, so they had spiritual asceticism, spiritual experiences to try and preserve the soul. But we don't believe that as Christians. We believe that body and soul will rise into a resurrected body, into a new creation. And because that is true, it drives us back into the world today with purpose and meaning and value and worth in our bodies. What we do, what we do now matters. It means that when we are faced with death in this world, we don't despair at the loss of a loved one. We're filled with expectant hope we will see them again in glory. It means that when we're faced with difficult decisions and circumstances in this world, we don't despair. As we suffer, we endure. As we are faced with difficult decisions about, do I invest my life in this? We go, I'm prepared to take a risk for the gospel. That's, that's why I give my life to sharing the gospel in the workplace. In my context, you might lose your job. But what's more important, my job now or people knowing Jesus? We might do crazy things like plant churches 
We might do crazy, costly things like move to be part of a different church, to see churches planted in areas where Jesus isn't known. We might do even crazy stuff like give money to the church so the gospel can go across the world and people can know Jesus. We might do crazy stuff like change our job or drop down days so we can be more present in the community. We might do crazy stuff like open our home up and let people come in and experience the hospitality and welcome of Jesus in our homes. We might do crazy stuff like look after other people's kids so they can have a break. We might do crazy stuff like that. I'm really grateful for those people. We don't cling to this world, which is temporary and fleeting. We cling to Jesus. But because we cling to Jesus, we're driven into the world to bring value and worth in all that we do. I think it changes our perspective on suffering, secondly. That no matter what we face in this life, here and now, it does not rob us of the reality that all suffering will be finally totaled up on that last day and Jesus will welcome you in and he will come alongside you with such intimacy and love and tenderness and he will wipe away every tear from your eye and he will say, well done. I used to play, I used to play a bit of soccer. I, I, look at me being so contextual. I used to play football. You ruined the name. I actually came to America to play professional soccer for a season in Cleveland. What a wonderful city that is, not. And I came to play over here because no professional club would have me in England. And I thought, hey, I'm sure I'll have a spot in America somewhere. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> but I, sadly, as that went on, it was great, wonderful. But right now, I can't, I, ever since I finished playing, I can't, I can't run can play. I have chronic pain in my Achilles. I have tendonitis that just robs me of the joy of what I used to do. But this reality means that one day I will run with joy. No more pain. Every morning I walk downstairs, I'm just in pain and pain and pain. And maybe for you, you're just walking in this physical pain and you just think, I don't know if this is worth it. Maybe it's personal pain. Maybe it's relational tension and pain you're experiencing in your life right now. Maybe you're just suffering rejection from family and friends because of your faith in Jesus. Or maybe your workplace is a hostile environment and you just think, I'm not sure Jesus is worth it for the sake of this suffering. It is too costly to continue to follow Jesus. And I implore you that because Jesus is alive, because we too will rise with him, your suffering is worth it and it is not in vain. It is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. Jesus knows your suffering and he is the one who suffered infinitely, undeservingly. And he now comes to you and says, you will be embraced with a welcome where I say, well done, good and faithful servant, because he has conquered the grave. We suffer now in light of glory. We suffer now and then experience glory. We don't say we should have perfect lives now because I'm a Christian. No, no, we suffer to show the surpassing worth of the glory of God that in spite of suffering, we cling to Jesus and he will not let you go. He suffered. He can sympathize with your pain and it is not in vain. The resurrection narrative tells a story of the, of the happy ever after ending. God wins, and we here united with him will win also. We will be raised like him into the newness of life. 
His resurrection has bought us an inheritance that will not fade, it will not perish, undefiled, kept for you. So no matter what you suffer now, our resurrection hope shapes our suffering to display a greater hope to this world around here who are trying to avoid suffering because they want glory now. And we say we can embrace suffering because of glory to come. It shapes how we serve. Paul talks how he, he humanly fought with beasts at Ephesus, that he died every day. Paul presents because the resurrection is true, he can abound in the agenda of serving Jesus for all his life because he knows it's worth it. I don't know about your culture here, but I feel suffocated in my culture with just a selfish, self-living agenda where everybody's out for themselves, that everybody's just out to serve their own wants and their own needs, and I just feel suffocated by it, and then I realize it's merely a mirror shining back on me that exposes my own selfishness. And yet here's the example, because the resurrection is true, we abound in the work of the Lord. We no longer serve our agenda, but we serve the agenda of Jesus so all people can come to know him. We, we now live lives that count for him. We live in a culture that says a life lived for God is in vain. But because the resurrection is true, it is a life that is not lived for God that is in vain. We now bound together, laboring together, serving together the glory of Jesus in the context of his church, serving one another because it's worth it. Maybe you just think, I serve so much nobody sees it. I don't know if it's worth it. Maybe, maybe you serve and you think nobody appreciates what I do. Nobody sees it. Nobody ever says anything. Maybe it's too costly to serve Jesus for you. No one notices the price you've paid, the sacrifices you've made, and yet. Paul says he knows, he understands. Because the resurrection is true, your labor is not in vain. None of it is in vain. You can die every day to your own selfish agenda for the glory of Jesus because he's worth it because he's alive, because the death is, the tomb is empty. I think it shapes, fourthly, our perspective on sin and shame. He says to them in verse 34, wake up and do not go on sinning. Because the resurrection is true, our sin has been, has been paid for in the past and in the present and the future, we strive for holiness, lives that display the goodness of Jesus, that displays to the world that his ways are good. You, I know you guys feel the heat around here. Montrose is saying to you that you're the oppressive party, that progressive liberalism is the way to go, that those people are truly free and you're not free because you live within the boundaries of Jesus who is oppressive. No, no, you showcase to the world because the resurrection is true, the goodness of Jesus. Jesus, as you swim in his boundaries, you're truly free and you get to go to the world and say, I am so free because of Jesus. Within his boundaries, I truly flourish and you show Montrose the goodness of Jesus. You help them taste and see his goodness in your life lived as you look back on your sins paid for and you strive for holiness. 
because you know one day sin will be no more. Lastly, I think it shapes our perspective on mission. He ends up with this real challenge. Some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. His inference here is that you, Corinth, are not to be debating issues and matters that are not true. You're to stand on the hope of the resurrection, that Jesus is alive, that he's coming for you, that you too will rise with him. That reality is to send you into the world to spread the knowledge of God. I said this to your shame, that you've argued and functioned and you have missed the reality that this is what you were left for. Jesus has not returned and then we wait with expectant hope proclaiming Jesus as Lord. Do people pity our lives in Jesus or envy our lives in Jesus? What would it look like to live life in light of the greater cause and plan of redemption? Your parishes are beacons of hope, holding out the light of the gospel to a lost and broken place. You in your workplace is a beacon of hope and light, of resurrection hope and light, proclaiming and holding forth the goodness of Jesus. As you plant churches all over the city, it's so that more people can come to know him as Savior and Lord. We give our lives to it. We live lives and display the hope we have for the glory of Jesus. And it's a glorious hope. It's an everlasting hope. It will not fade it will not burn up. It will not be destroyed. It will not be taken from you because when Jesus comes, he too will rise you with him into the glorious hope. And he will gather for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation those who will gather around the throne worshiping him saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. We give our lives on mission for that glory, for that day. And we will know it was all worth it. Every sacrifice that was made was worth it. Every act of service that was done was worth it. Every act of proclamation was worth it. Every bit of suffering was not in vain. He used it for his glory. And we have lived our lives rightly in light of his resurrection, secure. We're not people of the resurrection. Does your life display it? You're commissioned, you're sent to go and display that. Not by me. Not by his church, but by Jesus. Go therefore into all nations making disciples. We go with the reality that the imperishable one became perishable on our behalf. The immortal one became mortal on our behalf to save sinners by absorbing the sting of death in our place. And the venom of death has been absorbed by Christ and its potency has gone. So that victory over death now belongs to him and we now share in it. So he will be all in all. He has taken your sin. He has given you newness of life, a new heart and a new body awaits you. So let's lay it all down for his sake. Let's pray.